Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Big E here. This is episode 72 of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. And today we're talking about consent and two new cases from the Virginia Court of Appeals suppressing evidence that was obtained, attempted to be obtained by consent by law enforcement officers. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We're talking about law. What do you need to know? New statutes, new cases. It's been a while since we've done an episode. I have been holding off because I thought we would have some new laws. Uh, I know you may have thought the new laws for 2022 were over, but the budget bill, which is still the subject of debate between the governor and the two houses of the General Assembly, may can end up containing some new criminal laws in it. Not a lot, but a few that are really interesting. So I keep thinking that's going to come out and uh, but I figured these cases are pretty important. We need to talk about them today. And so we're going to talk about two new cases from the last month on consent. And that'll be our focus for today. You know, consent is a is one of the three main uh, forms of police citizen encounters. And it is probably one of the most important exceptions to the warrant requirement. In a consensual encounter, essentially, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply at all. In other words, if somebody agrees to allow a law enforcement officer to search them, to search their property, search their house, search their car, whatever. Law enforcement officer doesn't need reasonable suspicion or probable cause. But because you're searching without reasonable suspicion or probable cause, and you don't have a warrant, the law presumes that your search is unlawful. And it's the Commonwealth's burden, the state's burden, to demonstrate that that consent was, was lawfully obtained and that the search was done pursuant to that lawfully obtained consent. Twice in the last month, the Court of Appeals has suppressed evidence from a consent search. And as we talk about these cases, I think you may be surprised by the facts of these cases. Let me tell you a little bit about what these cases are and why we're talking about them. The first is a case, these are both uh, unpublished cases from the Court of Appeals, which means that they're not um, supposed to be authoritative, but they're definitely, uh, they're definitely cases that, that courts can rely on if they want to. And they are also very indicative, I think, of where the court is going. Again, we have uh, many new members of the Court of Appeals this year, uh, brand new members because the Court of Appeals was expanded last year. And so they're almost 50% bigger and almost all the new justices uh, are kind of different than the previous ones. They have different perspectives and you're gonna see that in a moment. The first case is Commonwealth versus Martinez. This is a case from Virginia Beach from 20, May 24th. And it's a Commonwealth's appeal this is a case where the Commonwealth, the evidence was suppressed by the trial court and the Commonwealth appealed that suppression to the Court of Appeals. In Virginia, the Commonwealth has a very limited right of appeal, but in this case, the Commonwealth did have a right of appeal. So here are the facts. In Commonwealth versus Martinez, uh, a guy passes out in an Uber. The Uber driver calls 911. The first, pe the first people to respond are police officers. They show up. They ask the guy if he's okay. They ask him for ID. They get his ID. They say, hey, you know, it's raining outside. Can we step to the side? Sure. Hey, do you mind if we search you? Do you have anything on you? Anything we need to know about? Do you mind if we search you? Guy consents. They find drugs. That's basically it. Three officers, guy on the side of the street, ask him for ID, ask him if they can search him. Court says that's not consensual. And in fact, not only does the court say it's not, con not lawful consent, the court in this case calls it police misconduct for the officers to search the defendant. So that's a pretty surprising ruling, right? We're going to talk about that. Well, I want to go into that and what both aspects of that. Number one, I want to go into the ruling that it's not consent. And then number two, I want to go into this ruling that it's police misconduct. That's a little unusual. 
The other case is a case from just this week. It's a case called Commonwealth versus Spivey. This is a case from June 14th. Again, unpublished case from, the, from Newport News, so Tidewater as well. And again, it's a Commonwealth's appeal. It's a case where the trial court suppressed the evidence and the Commonwealth appealed to the Court of Appeals. In this case, officer's driving down the street, gets out of his car, sees a guy walking down the street, says, hey man, what's up? Can I see your ID? Sure. He returns the ID to the guy and then he says, hey, can we step to the side of the road away from traffic? The guy says, sure. They step to the side. And once again, he says, hey, can I see your ID again? I just want to write your information down and make sure I know what your name is. He gives the ID again, gives him the ID back. He says, what's in your pocket? The guy says, what are you talking about? I don't know in my pocket. Come on, man. I know you got something in your pocket. And asks him a couple more times. Finally, the guy says, all right. He hands him what's in his pocket. And it's drugs. It's heroin. It's heroin that the guy agree, later on admits that he was selling. And the trial court suppresses the evidence. Case goes to the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals says... Yep, that is not a consensual encounter and agrees with the trial court and suppresses the evidence. So these are these are pretty non-intrusive encounters with law enforcement. And law enforcement hasn't forcibly stopped anybody. They haven't activated lights and sirens, haven't drawn guns, uh, haven't surrounded anybody. It's not pursuant to a traffic stop. And so when you look at these situations, these are officers on the side of the road talking to people, what makes these non-consensual encounters? What makes the consent invalid in these cases? That's what I want to talk about with you guys today. So as we talk about this, I think it's important that we step back for a minute and examine, you know, sort of what the law of consent is, consensual encounters. And then I want to dive back into these facts. Uh, Again, a consensual encounter, the core of it is uh, you know, these cases called like Mendenhall and Bostick, these U.S. Supreme Court cases, as long as a person feels that they are f- a reasonable person, would feel that they are free to disregard police and go about their business, that is considered to be a consensual encounter. Law enforcement doesn't need any reason to talk to somebody, but if they want to get consent to search, it has to be freely and voluntarily given. And again, it's our burden as the state to prove because it's a warrantless search, that the consent is voluntary. It's a question of fact. And consent uh, is always looked at from the totality of the circumstances. So you, and, it, and it's always done from an objective perspective. So when you measure the scope and the validity of consent, you sort of say, what would a reasonable person understand in these circumstances? The reasonable person standard presumes an innocent person, so not a person who knows they have drugs or is selling drugs and knows the police have caught, has caught on to them, but a reasonable, innocent person. And it's with police, so it's assumed that you're going to be in uniform. It's assumed that you're going to be armed. The mere fact that an officer is present doesn't make an, an, an encounter non-consensual, right? The court recognizes most people, if a police officer says, hey, do you mind if I search you? There's something inherently compelling about that, right? An officer is asking for consent, but it's not enough just to say, oh, he's a law enforcement officer. He's in uniform. He's a badge of authority. He's wearing a gun. Therefore, that's not a consensual encounter. And there's no requirement that law enforcement tell a person you have the right to refuse to consent to this search. 
um, you have the right to leave the situation, right? It's not required. You're looking from a reasonable, innocent person um, who doesn't necessarily know what their rights are, but doesn't necessarily need to be informed of what their rights are either. The consent is invalid if a person's will is overborne and they are not able to understand that they are free to leave or understand that they're free to say no. Um, but importantly, law enforcement can create a situation where a person might not feel free to say no or might be compelled using something other than physical force, using something other than um, holding somebody in custody. And some of the things that law enforcement can do, and you'll see this in these cases, to, uh, to, to, take a, to make someone feel that they're not free to leave, for example, is to hold on to their ID, to hold on to their identification documents, right? And some of the things that law enforcement can do to override someone's refusal for consent is to repeatedly ask for consent over and over and over again to the point where the person feels like they're not reasonably free to say no because every time they say no, officers come back and ask again and they ask again. So consent is an important tool for law enforcement, but if we're going to evaluate whether or not a consent, a consent is validly obtained, we have to look at the totality of the circumstances. And it's therefore going to be very subjective by the courts as to how, an, how a particular judge would feel about a situation. Even though it's supposed to be a reasonable person test, the reality is it's a judge using their subjective opinion, looking at a body camera, looking at uh, a video from the car, or just looking at the you know people testifying about the case and wondering, would a reasonable person think that they were free to say no to the search or free to walk away in this situation? There's nothing that we can do to take away that subjective view of the, of the judge as to what a re, what that judge believes a reasonable person would think in that situation. And that's, I think, a really important warning as we go back and look at these two cases. So let's look at Commonwealth versus Martinez in a little more detail. Commonwealth versus Martinez is this case from Virginia Beach where the guy passes out in the Uber and the Uber driver calls for police. Police are the first ones to get there. Now here, the defendant is... Um, He's got, a, he's got a medical issue of some kind, right? Uh, he's overdosing or he's drunk or whatever. So, and, and, and at this point, rescue hasn't arrived. He's in a medical emergency. The officers arrive on scene in the, in the rain and they say, can you get out of the rain? Can we walk to the side? So they go to the side and the first thing they ask him for is ID. They take his ID and one of the officers then walks back across the street to go run his ID. So at this point, we have the first problem in this case, right? Which is that the officer has the suspect's ID. And having the suspect's ID and holding on to it while another officer asks for consent is a big problem for the court. And the court here points to a U.S. Supreme Court case from the early 1980s called Florida versus Royer. Now, Florida versus Royer is an interesting case. It's from 1983, and it's a U.S. It's a very divided ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, here, you have a what's called a plurality opinion. In other words, it's an opinion written only by four judges. Five judges agreed that the evidence should have been suppressed, but only four judges could agree why. And so they write this plurality opinion that sort of becomes the the court's opinion in this case, even though it's not a majority of the judges, right? Because nine judges sit in the Supreme Court, 
Only four could agree on this language, but you know, more judges agreed the evidence should have been suppressed. Um, so they all agreed, you know, it should be suppressed. Um, and um, and then that you know, there was four dissenting judges as well. Um, but the case is a five to four case. But here's the facts of Royer. I think it's helpful in this case to understand what happens in Royer. So in Royer, this is an airport interdiction case where the suspect in this case buys a one-way ticket um, from Miami to New York. He's using a false name. He checks suitcases under his name uh, using the fake name. Uh, this is back when you could get away with this in an airline. Um, and two detectives walk up and they like, this guy's a drug courier, right? And so they walk up to him and they ask him for his airline ticket and his driver's license. And his driver's license, of course, has his real name. So they ask him about the fake name. And he says, oh, some my buddy made the name reservation for me. And they said, hey, look, we're narcotics investigators. We think that you may be uh, transporting narcotics. Uh, would you please come with us? And they ask him this question while they still have his driver's license and they still have his airline ticket. And so the suspect goes with the officers. He doesn't agree, but he doesn't disagree. He just goes with them. He goes with them. Uh, they ask for consent to search the bag. He then pulls out a key. He unlocks the suitcase, and the officers find drugs. Here, the defendant moves to suppress. The Florida court, the trial court, refuses to suppress the evidence. It goes to appeal. The district court of appeal uh, does suppress the evidence. And ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court in this case does suppress the evidence. They hold that it was proper for the officers to approach the suspect in this case, but it was it became non-consensual when they took his uh, and they took his driver's license and they took his airline ticket and they took him to this small room uh, and then asked him for consent to search the bag. At that point, because he couldn't terminate that encounter, a reasonable person couldn't just walk away when the officers had his driver's license and had his airline ticket. Uh, at that point, it's not, it's in the view of the court, it's not a consensual encounter, right? And here in Royer, for the, the court really articulates for the first time, you've got to look at the totality of the circumstances in a consensual encounter, right? So they initially talk to him, they tell him that he's suspected of an offense, and that's very important for the court. The accusation that he's, uh, that he is, potentially guilty of an offense that the officers believe him to be transporting narcotics and them taking his ID and then them saying, come with us to this room, to this other place, follow us. Those facts together in the totality of the circumstances make the situation non-consensual. So uh, the court, the Supreme Court in that case then uh, suppresses the evidence. So let's go back and take a look at the case from Virginia Beach, the Martinez case. What happens in Martinez? Uh, here, the officers ask the defendant to step to the side of the road to move him to another location. Now, it's pouring down rain. Of course they ask him for that, right? Simply asking him to step to the side of the road isn't, doesn't make it non-consensual, but it's a factor, right? And then they take his ID. And when they take his ID, they take his ID across the street so that if he needs to get it back, he would have to go back to that other officer and get the ID back. And then they ask him for consent in a situation where he's having some kind of medical emergency, right? A medical emergency that causes the, um, the, 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 the Uber driver to call for a rescue. Rescue still hasn't arrived yet, and the officers are talking to him. So in a situation where somebody's in a medical emergency, the officers have taken his ID, and they've taken his ID to some other place, and the officers have moved him to the side of the road, 
in that situation, would a reasonable person feel free to terminate the encounter and walk away? And the court here says no. The court here says that consent is involuntary. Uh, he's surrounded by three officers, one of whom has taken his license. No one's told him he's free to leave. And so a reasonable person would not feel free to leave. Um, if the officers had given him his license back and then asked for consent, would it be consensual? Well, the court says, you know, yeah, you can restore a encounter to a consensual encounter if you give someone their license back and tell the person they're free to leave or tell them that they can, uh, that again, they can, they're, they're free to refuse consent to search. Uh, but here that doesn't happen. And the court here says, and this is the court writing, there's no evidence that the defendant knew he had the right to withhold consent and no officer informed him of that right. Now, again, that's not required, but it's a factor, right? It's a factor that he didn't know and the officers didn't tell him. But the court here says, most importantly, the officers on the scene took advantage of a medical emergency to request to seize the defendant and acquire his consent to search before he'd been treated by the EMTs. But the court goes on to call this police misconduct. And I think that's a really important ruling. And I want to focus on why the court says it's police misconduct. It's unusual. We don't usually see a court make a finding that a search is involuntary and that the search is police misconduct. But here in this case, Judge Ortiz, and again, he's a new Supreme, he's a new Court of Appeals judge. Uh, this is one of the new judges they've appointed in the last couple of years. Here, Judge Ortiz says, oh, and by the way, this is police misconduct. Why? Why would he do that? Well, there's a reason for it. Uh, a few years ago, there was a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court from Virginia called Commons versus Commonwealth. Some of you know that case, and some of you know that <laughs> it was pretty involved in that case. Um, so in Collins, this is a, that was a, another case involving the implied consent, the implied consent that everybody has that a person can walk up to their house and not that a, a person, including a police officer, could walk up to their house and knock on the door. In Collins, an officer walks up uh, the driveway to Mr. Collins's house, and he. Uh, instead of walking up to the front door, walks to the side where there's a motorcycle parked. And he's suspected this motorcycle is a stolen motorcycle that's been that's fled from law enforcement repeatedly. He walks up to the motorcycle, lifts up the tarp, reads the VIN number. It is, in fact, the stolen motorcycle that's fled, fled from police repeatedly. And he uh, confronts Collins, who finally comes out of the house. Collins admits, yeah, it's a stolen motorcycle that I fled from the police repeatedly on. Uh, and, um, and they convict him at trial. The trial court uh, denies the motion to suppress. The Court of Appeals denies the motion to suppress. The Virginia Supreme Court agrees, motion to suppress denied. But it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in a five to four decision, the court rules that the search of the motorcycle was unlawful because, or well, not that it was unlawful, excuse me, what they rule, I'm sorry, I misspoke, that they, they find that the search of the, the motorcycle was not lawful under the automobile exception to the warrant, warrant requirement. So the Virginia Supreme Court had said that the search was lawful because of the automobile exception, because under Carroll, you can search a vehicle anytime. If you have probable cause, you don't need a search warrant. The U.S. Supreme Court says, no, if it's on private property, then yeah, you do still need a search warrant, that the protection for the home overrides the Carroll doctrine. And so even though a vehicle normally, you don't need a search warrant if you have probable cause, if the vehicle is parked on private property, like someone's home, 
the protection for their home overrides the Carroll Doctrine and you do need to get a search warrant or have another exception to the search warrant requirement. So the U.S. Supreme Court says maybe another exception to the search warrant applied in this case. So uh, they send it back to the Virginia Supreme Court to consider whether another exception to the search warrant requirement applied. And that's important because originally in the trial court and when the case went to the Court of Appeals, the trial court and the Court of Appeals said the Carroll Doctrine justifies the search, but also it was an exigent circumstance because this vehicle had repeatedly fled law enforcement at high speed. And in fact, there was indication the defendant was getting ready to flee again. Uh, when the officer talks to Collins, in fact, he's getting ready to jump on the motorcycle and drive it away again. So it goes back to the Virginia Supreme Court, but the Virginia Supreme Court here, instead of saying it's an exigent circumstance, rules something different. They say, well, you know, it's our job to decide not only if the Fourth Amendment was violated, but also whether the violation of the Fourth Amendment justifies a suppression of the evidence. Because not every violation of the Fourth Amendment calls for suppression of the evidence. Sometimes law enforcement may violate the Fourth Amendment, but in a way that's so minor that a court could rule, we just, it, it's such a minor issue. It's so complicated. It's so convoluted. How could an officer understand this? It's not worth suppressing the evidence. Because the goal of suppressing evidence, and this goes all the way back to Mapp versus Ohio in the days of the 1950s and 60s, when the U.S. Supreme Court for the first time really created the exclusionary rule. Uh, it didn't used to exist in U.S. law. It used to be that, you know, violation of the Fourth Amendment couldn't result in lawsuits, but not necessarily suppressing the evidence. But when the court first invents this uh, suppression remedy, the court says, we're doing this to deter law enforcement from doing something unlawful. So the, in Collins, the Virginia Supreme Court says, well, what deterrence value would it be in this case? The officer thought he was doing something lawful, and the trial court agreed it was lawful. The Court of Appeals agreed it was lawful. The Virginia Supreme Court agreed it was lawful. And four judges of the U.S. Supreme Court agreed it was lawful. So what deterrence value is there in suppressing evidence in a case where almost all the judges who've heard this case thought that the officer was doing something proper? What would the officer be deterred from doing? He was acting uh, kind of like in good faith. So taking us back to this consent search case in Martinez, uh, in the Virginia Beach case, in that case, the Commonwealth said, look, why are we, we suppress the evidence in this case? Even if you think that a reasonable person wouldn't feel free to leave, these officers very much, you know, thought they were lawfully asking for consent, did not reasonably think that they were over, overriding his consent. And if you don't agree with the officers, there's no value in suppressing the evidence because you're not deterring them. They didn't do anything that was obviously wrong or violate any clear rules. Um, so even if there's some disagreement about the lawfulness of the search, we shouldn't still suppress the evidence. That was the Commonwealth's argument in this case. And so the court responds to that argument by saying, no, we think that this search was not lawful. We think this consent was not lawfully obtained. And we're going to suppress the evidence because we think that the officers knowingly or should have known that they were violating a clear rule. And so here the court says, because the exclusionary rule is necessary to deter police misconduct in the future, the court suppresses the evidence. Um, the court here says the officers committed misconduct in illegally seizing the defendant and coercing his consent when they knew or should have known that he was seized. That he was seized. 
and the act of coercing consent while the defendant was awaiting medical assistance and while the officers themselves were supposed to be aiding him is police misconduct meriting the use of the exclusionary rule. And so here the court says because they should have known that what they were doing was unlawful, that's why the court is suppressing evidence. Not just that there's a violation of law, because a mere violation of law of the Fourth Amendment doesn't necessarily mean the evidence gets suppressed. Uh, but here the court writes, it's objectively unreasonable for a police officer to not know that retaining a driver's license under the circumstances presented here constitutes a seizure of a suspect and that the consent following that seizure would be involuntary. A long line of cases has established precedent that is well-known or should be well-known to police officers. And the court goes on to cite a lot of cases where officers who've retained somebody's license and then asked for consent while they're holding out the person's license uh, did not lawfully get consent and the evidence was suppressed. And there are a lot of cases like that. Uh, you should not hold on to someone's license while you're asking them for consent. But it's interesting here, too. Again, the court looks at the totality of the circumstances, as all courts do, and thinks it's really important here, too, that the, the, uh, that the suspect was in a medical emergency. So what about the Spivey case, right? So in the Spivey case, this is the case from Newport News, where an officer is just walking down the street. There's a guy, he's not needing medical attention. He's perfectly fine. The officer walks up to him and says, hey, it's just one officer, not three, just one officer, and says, hey, man, can I see your ID? Gets his ID and returns it to him. So there in Spivey, it's one officer, the guy's not in medical distress, and the officer has given him his license back, and still the court says it's not valid consent. So how could that case turn out that way? Well, there's a couple of things to note about this case. The first is the interaction that they have about searching this pocket. So the officer doesn't want to just search him. He wants to search this pocket particularly. And the defendant says, no, you can't search me, and says, why are you trying to search me? And the officer says, look, I'm only asking whether you have anything illegal on you. And the defendant says, no, I don't. The officer then says, well, the cigarette box you put in your pocket, is there nothing in there? Well, I want to see what's in the cigarette box. And the officer says, I saw you put that in your pocket. The defendant says, no, there is no cigarette pocket. I don't have a cigarette box. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have it. And they go back and forth like this three times. The officer says, come on, man, I know there's a cigarette box in your pocket, and I know you got it. And Spivey says, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not there. It's not there. At this point, another officer arrives, and this officer gets out of his car and starts walking up from, to Spivey from behind. And as this other officer is walking up behind Spivey, uh, again, the officer says, come on, I know there's something in there. And it's interesting in this case because you remember in Royer, uh, the officers accuse Mr. Royer. They say, we think you're transporting narcotics. What does Mr. Spivey think? Well, I want to take you back to the beginning of the encounter. When the officer is is running Mr. Spivey's idea, writing his information down, the um, the he's writing the information down, and the suspect, Spivey, says to the officer, hey, man, it looks like somebody wanted for you to do that. In other words, the suspect says out loud, I think that you are stopping me because you already suspect me. And by the way, he kind of is. This is not a random encounter. The officer really does know. Uh, he doesn't have reasonable suspicion or probable cause to stop Spivey, but he knows Spivey's a drug dealer. Uh, and he's got reason to think that he is. So the off he just can't. He doesn't have enough reasonable suspicion or probable cause, but he's heard information that, that Spivey's a drug dealer, and that's why he's engaging this in encounter. And he's not wrong. Spivey is a drug dealer, and he's selling heroin. So um, so Spivey knows that the officer's on to him. He says, looks like somebody's already telling you to stop me. 
And he keeps saying, no, I don't want you to do this. No, I don't want you to The officer keeps saying, come on, come on, come on. And finally, this defendant pulls the box out of his pocket, and the officer reaches out and says, can I see it? And the officer says, oh, and the Spivey says, okay. And he searches it, finds the heroin, and Spivey agrees. And here, the trial court says, yeah, getting out of the car and talking to Spivey is consensual, but the nature of the interaction shifts once the defendant asks, why are you trying to search me? And the officer points specifically to the cigarette package and says, I'm interested in that package. I want to see that package. And when it goes up on appeal, the Court of Appeals is has to presume that the trial court's ruling is correct. So this is a rule, and this was true in the Martinez case from Virginia Beach as well, when the trial court makes a ruling, it's presumed correct, whether it's a suppression or not suppression. And the Court of Appeals, to overturn that ruling, has to find no, under the facts, it was clearly wrong for the trial court to make that ruling. So with that presumption in place, that here the Court of Appeals, and this is Judge Lorish, who again has reversed a lot of convictions, uh, reversed a lot of trial court rulings this year. Judge Lorish is one of these new, new Court of Appeals judges uh, who again have a very different perspective than previous courts do. And here Judge Loris writes, we cannot say the trial court's factual findings were plainly wrong or without evidence to support them or that the court's ultimate conclusion was an error. In other words, it wasn't plainly wrong. Sure, asking for ID doesn't make somebody seized, um, but accusing someone of a crime, that can be different. That can create a situation where someone doesn't feel free to go. Here again, officer doesn't tell the defendant he's free to go, but doesn't really go into a lot of detail here. One of the issues in this case, I think, is that the trial court really made a subjective ruling and said this particular suspect, Mr. Spivey, did not feel free to leave under the totality of circumstances and did not apply an objective test, the objective, reasonable, innocent person. But the Commonwealth didn't object to that at trial. And because the Commonwealth didn't object to that, the Court of Appeals here says we're going to refuse to review whether or not the court of whether or not the trial court uh, pr uh, applied the correct standard the commonwealth should have objected at trial and because they didn't we're not going to review that on appeal would this case have been different if the trial court had refused to suppress the evidence sure i think the court of appeals probably would have sustained that and found it consensual encounter would the case have been different if the commonwealth had objected at trial to the court using the wrong standard maybe i'm not sure but here the question is what's the lesson I think there's three lessons I would take from here. The first lesson is, uh, generally, broadly speaking, the Court of Appeals is going to be much more skeptical of consensual encounters going forward. We have two brand new judges, dear Judge Ortiz and Judge Lorish, who kind of come out swinging against consensual encounters and going to hold a very high standard. Number two, uh, you got to give somebody their license back before you ask for consent to search. Uh, that's clear from Martinez, and Martinez is absolutely clear about this. And, and previous cases have been clear about this too. It's not new law. If you're going to search somebody, you've got to give them their ID back. Uh, and number three, watch out for other things that can be coercive, like the fact that somebody's in medical distress. Or, uh, like in Spivey, repeatedly asking somebody, hounding somebody for consent who said no. The first time, okay, maybe. The second time, I don't know. The third time, you're trying to overbear their will in the eyes of at least Judge Lorish in this case, in this Spivey case. So uh, do take care. If you're asking for consent, if the person says no, that kind of no means no. And if you start trying to cajole them and, and pepper them and hit them again and again, uh, the court may see you as overruling their, over trying to override their will. 
So some interesting cases today. I uh, hope it's interesting. I hope it was helpful. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, if you just want to listen to it on a web browser, we're on, um, uh, excuse me, that's SoundCloud. We're on uh, Stitcher Podcast. Um, but that's all for today. That's all from me. It's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.